From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Is the Republican Party headed for a split? A former member of Congress and Colorado resident has helped form a group to consider creating a third party as an alternative to the GOP, which President Trump still largely controls. And I thought, well, if we have some gravitas, maybe we're a match for the man who is perpetrating lies. Then kids 12 and older can now get the COVID vaccine in Colorado. What parents need to know. And the intersection between cannabis and social justice. I like to call cannabis a gateway drug, uh, not a gateway to harder drug use, but a gateway into the criminal justice system for some of our most marginalized populations. On Something kicks off a special project, Fair Shake, the pitfalls on the path to social equity. Because of community support, Colorado Public Radio has scaled up its operations, delivering trustworthy information and music to audiences throughout the state on multiple easy-to-access platforms, with spaces for us all to share and embrace stories of hope, resilience, creativity, and joy. What CPR brings to your life is only possible because of financial support from the community. Many giving as Evergreen members, donating what feels affordable on a monthly basis. Add your support at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Wyoming Representative Liz Cheney was ousted on Wednesday from her position as the GOP's conference chair, the third-ranking member of the party in Congress. The move came as a result of her continued criticism of the idea embraced by many Republicans that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Donald Trump. I uh, will do everything I can to ensure that the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. We have seen the danger that he continues to provoke with his language. Uh, We have seen his lack of commitment and dedication to the Constitution. Uh, And I think it's very important that we make sure whomever we elect is somebody who will be faithful to the Constitution. Meanwhile, the New York Times reported earlier this week that a group of 100 Republicans, including some former members of Congress, are preparing to release a letter this week threatening to form a third party if the Republican Party does not make certain changes. One of the architects of the letter and the burgeoning movement is Claudine Schneider, a former congresswoman from Rhode Island who now lives in Boulder. She's also the founder of Republicans for Integrity. Representative Schneider, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Avery. A pleasure to be with you this morning. We just heard from Liz Cheney, but obviously your group was formed long before Wednesday's events. Is it because of similar dissatisfaction with Donald Trump or something more? Well, it's something more. I think that many people feel politically homeless right now. And so this um, a call for American renewal is to form a new coalition not necessarily a new party, but it's calling on the Republican Party to shape up and to embrace the principles that we have outlined that include such things as the rule of law, individual rights, protecting the environment. And the group that I had formed about three years ago, Republicans for Integrity, was made up of only former members of the U.S. House and U.S. Senate only Republicans. Well, we are now merging with this new coalition so that we can all work together and um, help either reform the Republican Party 
um, or consider an alternative at this point. And what are you calling this new coalition? It's so far, it's um, a call for AmericanRenewal.org, excuse me, .com. And we're urging people who will look at the 10 principles that we've identified as foundational to a new coalition of many of the voters who feel essentially homeless right now um, because the extremism of both parties is not satisfactory. We've seen a major increase in the number of people who have not only left the Republican Party, but a number of people who have decided extremism is enough and we're moving toward um, identifying as independents. So given those transitions, I think voters are speaking loudly and clearly that our two-party system is not working in the best interest of all the people, and we have to do some political reforms. And you say at this point it is a coalition, it is not an official third party, but that's actually something that you're considering. Um, tell me a little bit more about what would move you into the process of officially trying to make a third party. Well, a third party would emerge, I believe, if the current GOP does not shape up and embrace the um, truth, such as Liz Cheney has indicated this week. And if it were to stop criticizing people like Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney, who are also showing that they have backbone and stand up for what is right and what is in the best interest of all the people. So uh, that sort of reform of the Republican Party doesn't happen overnight, but we are certainly making it very clear that as a coalition, um, we will stand in opposition to candidates who lie, who don't embrace the Constitution, who don't embrace the rule of law, and um, if that candidate is an independent, a Republican or a Democrat, we will support them because we're looking for integrity to be returned to the political process. Now, I want to get into your issues a little bit. So what you feel like it would take for the Republican Party to so so to speak, shape up. Um, so the American Renewal Party or rather coalition um You've said that when you served in Congress in the 80s and 90s, it was commonplace for representatives and senators to put country over party. And that's a phrase that's come up a lot in recent years, especially during impeachment trials of, Don of the President Trump in the 2020 election. Um, but you think that that's been lost today. How has that happened? How did it happen? I think it happened as a result of dark money going into elections. And we have seen um, many of our House and Senate members embrace issues where if you follow the money, you see it is a result of major contributions to their campaigns. So they are answering to special interests as opposed to the public interest. When I served in Congress for those 10 years between 1980 and 90, we had a Republican president, but the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives. And there were 29 of us Republicans who had as a guiding light, what is in the best interest of the public? We don't care if a Democrat introduced the bill or a Republican introduced the bill, what is going to best serve our you know, constituencies? 
And just to give you an example, um, in 1989, I introduced the Global Warming Prevention Act. As a Republican, that's unheard of today because today's Republicans um, are not adhering to science, either the science of climate change or the science of vaccinations. Um, and when I introduced that bill, I had 140 bipartisan co-sponsors of that legislation. So um, the reality is we've been there before, we can get there again, but it's going to take some major reform of the Republican Party, and that is going to be up to the voters. The voters have to look closely at the people that they are choosing to represent them and not to pay attention to what they're saying, but more importantly, to what they're doing. And granted, Avery, Colorado Public Radio does a great job of covering many of the issues. But the fact of the matter is, if you want to know where your elected officials are getting their money, if you want to know how they're voting on specific bills, you can go to votesmart.org and check that out. And that is also a nonprofit organization that many of us former members organized years and years ago so that people could have the facts about what their elected officials are doing. Um, and I've had heard far too many voters say, oh, I'm voting for him or her because she tells it like it is. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> they may be saying what you would like them to be saying, but what are they actually doing? Because in politics, actions speak louder than words. I have to ask, though, because you mentioned that some of the things that are issues that you care about deeply are different than what a lot of our party line Republican issues are now. How do you respond to criticism from current Republican members of Congress or voters who still align with Donald Trump that members of American Renewal or are Republicans in name only? Um, we think that the Trumpsters are Republicans in name only. Let's let's be clear here. Uh, the those who initially founded the Republican Party believed in fiscal responsibility. For example, the 2017 tax cut is a great example of lack of fiscal responsibility on the part of Republicans because everyone knows that during a time of a solid economy. You do not create, a, you do not call for a tax cut. As a result of the 2017 cut, they added more than $4.1 trillion to the debt by 2029. And um, in 2018, the tax revenues declined. So when the current president, uh, Biden, says that he wants to raise taxes and Mitch McConnell says no, um, I think that clearly he is not representing voters or citizens today or tomorrow because this kind of lack of responsibility does not really reflect the Republican Party. We are going to have to wrap up there. Representative Schneider, thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Thanks, Avery. Take good care. You too. Claudine Schneider is former congresswoman from Rhode Island and lives in Boulder. She's one of the driving forces behind American Renewal, a movement of about 100 Republicans who are considering forming a third party as an alternative to the current GOP. 
Across the state, health departments are beginning to open up COVID-19 vaccine clinics to children 12 and older. That comes on the heels of the CDC's announcement Wednesday that it endorses the use of the Pfizer vaccine for that age group. Dr. Sean O'Leary is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus and an infectious disease specialist. He works closely with the CDC's committee that recommended the approval of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine for kids 12 and up. Dr. O'Leary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. The CDC's decision comes after the FDA's recently approved the Pfizer vaccine for kids 12 and over. Do you have any reservations about the safety of the vaccine for these children? Oh, I really don't. You know, the the studies that were done in the 12 to 15 year olds, it had a very similar safety profile to uh, adults, which now we know with over 130 million doses given to adults, the, the Pfizer vaccine looks to be an, uh, both a very highly effective vaccine, but also an incredibly safe vaccine. So the safety profile is similar to adults. How about the effectiveness of the vaccine in kids compared to older people? Well, so this the, this particular study was not uh, originally designed to test effectiveness, uh, but it, as it turned out, it was uh, very highly effective. There were um, 16 cases of the of COVID-19 infection in the children who received the placebo, a saline shot, and zero cases in the kids who got uh, the actual vaccine. So 100% effectiveness, essentially. The two-dose vaccine, it can have some side effects for adults, a sore arm, fatigue, fever. Those are all signs that the vaccine is working like it's supposed to and that people are building immunity against COVID-19. Can kids experience those same side effects? Yeah, I would expect that that's going to be similar in kids. That's what we saw in the trial. That's what we saw in the 16, 17, 18-year-olds who have been getting the vaccine so far with with millions of doses delivered to them. So really variable. Some people barely even notice a sore arm. Other people actually have a fever for a day or two. And are there kids that should not be getting this vaccine? You know, really not. I, I think um, there, the only contraindication would be a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine, which they wouldn't have gotten already, um, or one of the components. But that, that, that's actually going to be incredibly rare. Um, severe food allergy is not a contraindication. Um, I know parents have a lot of questions about that. Um, and for kids with certain chronic medical conditions, there may be a situation where uh, the vac- they may not respond as well to the vaccine. Uh, but it doesn't mean they shouldn't get it. And and certainly for those those families, they could uh, talk with their pediatrician or their subspecialist. I also wonder about the kind of questions you're getting from parents. Kids do tend to have milder symptoms when they do get COVID. So do you have parents asking you why kids even need the vaccine and what do you say to them? Yeah, great question. I think there are really kind of three reasons that, that kids um, should get the vaccine. First of all, you know, um, we're all aware of of the herd immunity concept at this point. And essentially, the more people we can get vaccinated, the the, the fewer cases we're going to see, the more lives we're going to save. And children 12 to 15 years old represent a pretty large portion of the population. So there's that. But but really, more importantly, it's about the kids. And so for the kids themselves, um, having been vaccinated really offers you a ticket to do a lot of things that you otherwise wouldn't have. Um, Just from a practical standpoint, for example, if uh, a a child is vaccinated and they're exposed to COVID-19 at school, they wouldn't have to quarantine the way they otherwise would. 
Um, so that's that's a practical one. And then the most important thing is is really to protect the children themselves. So we all know that this disease is is much more severe in adults. Um, but I think we've become a little numb to, to uh, the, the severity of this pandemic with, you know, well over half a million deaths in the U.S. already. And, and so it's not correct to say that it's a benign disease in children. We've had several hundred pediatric deaths already, tens of thousands of hospitalizations. Um, and, and actually, COVID-19 fits into the top 10 causes of death for children at this point. So we absolutely need a vaccine to protect the children themselves. And for kids who have missed their regular vaccinations this year during the pandemic, if they need to catch up on those, can they get those other vaccines along with this one or is there a safety risk there? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, The CDC and the AAP now, the American Academy of Pediatrics, are now recommending that it is okay to go ahead and give other vaccines around the time that you're getting uh, the COVID-19 vaccine, whether it's the same day or in the, the days before and after. And uh, that's really important because as a result of the pandemic, we have seen a big drop in uh, vaccination uptake. And so we really have a lot of catching up to do to to avoid seeing, uh, you know, as we return sort of to a lot more mixing in society, we really need to, to get everyone caught up to avoid outbreaks of other vaccine preventable diseases. And up to this point, the vaccines they've been given in clinics or at pharmacies, many kids get their vaccinations at their doctor's office. Will pediatricians offices be administering these vaccines? Yeah, great question. So, you know, pediatricians give the bulk of vaccines to uh, America's children. They're they're incredibly uh, good and efficient at delivering vaccines. Um, This particular vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, presents a few challenges, uh, but the hope is that we're going to be able to overcome those challenges and get these vaccines into pediatricians' offices. There are some pediatricians' offices that are already doing it. Many have signed up to to do it and become providers, and I know that our state health department is working uh, to, to move vaccines into the primary care setting, including pediatricians offices and family physicians offices to try and um, really offer vaccination at every opportunity. Yeah, something that we'll keep an eye on. Also, researchers are still studying the effects of the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson vaccine for preteens. They're also studying whether COVID-19 vaccines are safe for kids younger than 12. How close are we to a vaccine for kids under 12? Yeah, so probably the closest one for under 12 would be the Pfizer and Moderna, vac- or I'm sorry, the Pfizer vaccine. They have, um, uh, the, the company has said that they will likely be able to submit data for an emergency use authorization in September for ages 2 to 11. So we may see that as soon as the fall for, for the younger kids, but probably not sooner than that. Dr. O'Leary, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Dr. Sean O'Leary is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus and an infectious disease specialist. Dr. O'Leary advises the CDC committee that on Wednesday recommended the approval of Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine for children 12 and over. A secret weapon against climate change could be hiding in the sewers. Underground pipes contain excess energy. With the right technology, that energy could be used to heat and cool buildings. The concept is now being put to work in Denver. CPR's climate and environment reporter Sam Brash found the city will soon be home to North America's largest sewer heat recovery system. If you're wondering how energy ends up in the sewers, it's really not that complicated. Anything in your house that uses hot water literally sends energy down the drain. 
That could be your dishwasher, a hot sink, or you know, a hot steamy shower, like where I am right now. The Department of Energy even estimates that enough power for one-fifth of U.S. homes literally ends up in the sewers. The only real question is how to go get it, and it turns out that's happening right now in Denver. In North Denver, Katie Haggerty oversees a construction crew inside a recently dug pit. At the bottom is a sewer pipe. It's one of the main arteries carrying Denver's wastewater to the South Platte River. Literally tapping into the sewer right here. We, we did it over the last three weeks. The sewage inside the pipe will soon be put to work at the National Western Center. The 250-acre site is home to the National Western Stock Show and Rodeo. It's currently busy with a massive remodel. By 2024, it'll host seven new buildings, including a campus for Colorado State University. And all those new spaces will be kept comfy with a nice dose of sewer heat. It's a thrill to be a part of. I've built all sorts of different projects, nothing like this before. If you're worried about the smell, let me reassure you. The sewage won't actually be pumped into the buildings. A separate plant will transfer the heat to clean water, which will then run through a loop connecting the whole campus. The National Western Center says the project will help it avoid tons of climate warming emissions, and there's another environmental benefit too. After the wastewater is collected and treated, we return it to the river and, and recharge the river at this location. William Cavanaugh is with the Metro Wastewater Reclamation District. We're outside its gigantic sewage treatment plant where waterfalls of treated sewage cascade into the South Platte River. This wastewater comes from more than 2 million Metro Denver residents. And one problem, it's often a little warmer than the river itself, warm enough to even harm aquatic life. And, and once that project over at the National Western Center gets done, will it, it'll consistently be cooler as a result? That's correct. We're removing thermal energy, and so that'll help us uh, move towards our goals of reducing the temperature on our effluent. So to recap, the project will reduce the energy needed for heating and cooling at the National Western Center, cutting carbon emissions, and it'll improve local river health. It's a win-win. But if the benefits are so obvious, why is this only one of a handful of projects in the country? Shanti Pless is with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden. He says one reason is the technology behind the systems is pretty new. With the advent of large-scale heat pumps, we can now cost-effectively, you know, use, you know, say, 70-degree heat uh, wastewater to heat our buildings and our hot water systems. But Pless says the biggest barrier today is rethinking the size of heating and cooling systems. The heat pumps work, but they work best in huge networks for whole neighborhoods or developments, not individual homes or businesses. This requires upfront planning. So once you kind of do all that, then it becomes pretty clear that this, this, you know, these types of approaches can scale. Plus says the Denver project could blaze a path into the sewers. But the people behind the project also worry it could work too well and trigger a sort of sewer heat gold rush. Brad Buchanan is the CEO of the National Western Center. He says as plans for the campus came together, we had to answer the question, how do we protect these thermal energy, these sewer thermal energy rights? The result was an agreement with Metro Wastewater. It guaranteed the campus exclusive access to the extra energy inside the nearby sewer pipes. Buchanan says it has him thinking about the whole future of real estate development. It'll be interesting to see if folks sort of start to look at not just where light rail lines are located uh, or, uh, or good schools are located, but what's the proximity to a large sanitary sewer line running through Denver somewhere? Because if you choose the right place and sign the right agreements, a wealth of sewer heat could be all yours.
I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. After the break, on something and the connection between cannabis and social justice. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Congratulations to CPR's Dan Boyce, winner of the prestigious National Press Foundation's Mattingly Award for his poignant and powerfully personal story, The Long Lonely Lake. The way I saw it, this was something my dad didn't understand. I I was at wit's end. I was collapsed on the ground, and it was getting dark, and I was exhausted. Listen to The Long Lonely Lake, an autobiographical portrait of severe depression and recovery at backfrombroken.org. What does the cannabis industry say about social equity, and what can it teach us about creating a fairer society? That's something On Something explores as it kicks off Season 3. On Something is CPR's podcast that looks into the political, legal, and cultural effects of marijuana legalization. And host Anne-Maria Wad joins us now. Hi, Anne. So glad to be here. We're going to listen to the season three premiere in just a moment. But first, this podcast has been a journey for you. What's been your biggest revelation or aha moment about the legalization of cannabis and how the industry continues to evolve? Well, I mean, I think this upcoming season is the big aha moment, honestly. Um, I think in the last two seasons, we tried really hard to both address questions that lots of people had about legalization, but also kind of shine a light on some issues people might not know about. And I think through that process, there was a lot of learning. Um, There was a lot of learning that, you know, legal weed isn't legal for everybody Um, and that the industry is really sort of shaping up to be pretty homogenous. And we're far enough out from legalization here in Colorado and in enough other states to sort of ask why. Like, why is this happening? What are the factors that contribute to this? And is it fixable? So it's not a brand new industry anymore. No. Um, And this season, you explore that social equity piece through through your special series that it's called Fair Shake. Why did you decide to look at the impact of cannabis through that lens? It's interesting. We kind of walk backwards into this theme a little bit um, in the sense that we... I I want to I want to give people an impression that there's a lot of rhyme and reason and mystique behind the episodes that we pick, but there is not as much as you might think. Um, and I think as we started trying to pull together a season, the stories that we were just naturally gravitating towards um, were stories about people fighting for fairness in this area um, and fighting for some version of legalization that doesn't just let you smoke weed, um, but that really heals harm um, that's been done to communities, that's been done to people. Um, and so as we started to kind of... Um, look down our list and find like, oh, we have like three, four episodes about this. We decided that it just seemed to make sense to focus on it the whole season um, because there's so much for us to talk about. So over eight episodes, we're going to be talking to you about it all. (laughs) And without giving too much away, what are some of the stories coming up? Yes. So, um, oh, I'm really excited about this one because we're we're going all over a little bit more. Um, We are having a story in Massachusetts all about kind of black ownership in the industry. Um, We have another episode coming up about government corruption from the South. Um, We have... uh, I don't want to give too much away about this, but we are going to sort of tackle the is marijuana racist debate, but we're going to try to do it in a in a brand new way. Um, And uh, something that I'm working on this week, actually, is an episode all about sort of how underground folks go legal or can they go legal or is there a realistic route for them to go legal? Um, So there's a lot of a lot of questions we haven't been asking before on the season. I am so excited to listen. And Maria Wadd is the host of On Something. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Let's listen to the third season premiere now called A Laboratory for Fairness. The voters of Massachusetts 
should be very proud to put Massachusetts again at the forefront of a sweeping social movement in America. It was 2016, and Massachusetts voters had just narrowly approved legal recreational weed. It was a fitting homecoming for Sonia Erica, who had just moved back to Boston after a little over a year away from school. I needed to take time off because I needed space from Harvard as an institution that holds a lot of wealth, it holds a lot of privilege, and so I needed a little break from that because I didn't come from wealth or from privilege. So I took the year off and I was super, super thankful because after taking that year off, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and I knew exactly how I wanted to dedicate my time. While she was away from school, she took on odd jobs, including selling weed to pay the bills. On the one hand, it helped her survive. And on the other hand, as an undocumented person, she could have faced deportation and possibly a lifetime ban for coming into contact with cannabis. That contradiction was one of the reasons she got involved with legalization. Legal weed happens because of the hard work of activists like Sonia. But she and many others were never just in it so that they could light up legally. They were there from day one because to them, legal weed was always a social justice issue. Her dreams were bigger than just dispensaries. Sonia dreamed of getting people out of prison, reuniting families, and getting those folks stable jobs and opportunities in the industry. Because not only did the voters say yes to legal weed, they said yes to a vision of it that would at least encourage participation from those most harmed by the war on drugs. Well, first, we were so excited. We had so much hope. Sonia would go on to co-found the Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council with a handful of her friends. In a way, their mission was to hold the state to its promise, to get a seat at the table for black and brown people, for undocumented people, for people with criminal records from cannabis. But once Sonia got a seat at the table, she realized it wasn't a table so much as it was almost like getting a seat in coach. There were still other people in first class who had more influence, more privileges, and most importantly, a front row seat to the process. I remember one of these meetings, there was a woman who was part of that main table of decision makers who didn't even know what an edible was. It's like, why are you here? I should be sitting there. (laughs) We had so much hope. And over the course of time, our hope was unfortunately deflated. Deflated because she started to watch an industry take shape in Massachusetts that looked nothing at all like social justice. In fact, to her, it looked more like Wall Street than anything else. That was so frustrating because we were giving so much time, so much passion, so much, you know, love to legalization and helping it legalize the right way. And it just wasn't happening. And it was happening way too slow. Now, I first met Sonia back in 2019 when I first started making this show. And at that time, she told me cannabis legalization might be the last shot at achieving real societal fairness in her lifetime. I remember her telling me that at first, her passion was immigration reform. But as an immigrant herself, 
she started to feel like it was a lost cause. She felt like the economy was built already on the status quo, but that legalization would be a rare chance at creating a brand new economy with fairness hardwired into it from the get-go. But it's been almost five years since Massachusetts legalized. Five years since the state was hailed as taking this big, progressive step that didn't even pan out the way that it was supposed to. On the one hand, change takes time. Rome wasn't built in a day and all that. On the other hand, is time running out? Has the green rush already come and gone, and the only ones who benefited were the usual suspects? Rich, white guys? And what about the disproportionately impacted? The communities harmed by marijuana prohibition and enforcement? Is it too late for them to get a fair shake? This is On Something, stories about life after legalization. I'm Anne-Marie Awad. Welcome back to another season where this time we're going to try something a little bit different. This season is all about the movement for social equity. Now, we've done stories about social equity laws on this show before. We've done stories about race before. But this time, we're looking at weed legalization as a sort of laboratory for fairness. If America can find a way to right the wrongs of the war on drugs, then maybe there is hope for all the other injustices we haven't figured out yet. We're calling this season Fair Shake, the pitfalls on the path to social equity. Before we get into the meat of the matter, we should probably talk about some key definitions and how they apply to the business of cannabis specifically. All right, so this is an easy one. Equality. It's the idea of each person getting an equal slice of pie. Boom. Done. Equity is when each person gets only as much pie as they need. So you wouldn't give a slice to someone who is already full, but you might give two slices to someone who is famished. Social equity is that pie idea applied to our society. A socially equitable society would prioritize the needs of those whose need is greatest, right? The people who have never had any pie or who have had all of their pie taken from them. I like to call cannabis a gateway drug, not a gateway to harder drug use, but a gateway into the criminal justice system for some of our most marginalized populations. This is University of Toronto professor Akwasi Owusu-Bempa. He's also the lead researcher for the Campaign for Cannabis Amnesty. My academic work focuses on inequality and criminal justice. Uh, you can't do that work without looking at drugs. Drugs are a major driver of inequality in the justice system, one that has been used uh, in many places and over many years uh, as a means of social control to target specific groups of people and, and bring them into the criminal justice system. And he says equitable cannabis legalization must account for that fact. Social equity for me in the world of cannabis uh, and cannabis legalization uh, really refers to three things. Cannabis amnesty, inclusion in the legal industry, and reinvestment of cannabis profits. The first part of that, cannabis amnesty, is the clearing of records of those who have criminal convictions for marijuana-related crimes that are no longer illegal. We've talked about this before in the first season of our show. 
The second part is inclusion in the legal industry. So that's ensuring that the very people who were targeted uh, by the war on drugs and who have been disproportionately criminalized for cannabis and other drug-related crimes are provided an opportunity to benefit from the fruits of legalization. And then the third part of social equity in cannabis is reinvestment. We need to recognize that each year billions of dollars are spent policing a war on drugs. That's money going to police agencies, going to courts and going to corrections instead of to schools, to hospitals, community centers. And so I think that true uh, social equity and legal cannabis involves the reinvestment of a portion of cannabis revenue and cannabis tax revenue into those very communities. So think of those as three ways to redistribute the pie, so to speak, using legalization like a big knife to cut fair slices. For activists like Akwasi and Sonia Erica in Massachusetts, this was always the point. Like for us, it was always about equity. We started with equity. So when it came to the people who wanted in, Sonia was there. MRCC, the organization that she helped run, educated everyday people about how the law worked, coached them on what they needed to apply for a license, and lobbied the government on behalf of people harmed by the war on drugs. So, as you mentioned, at the time, you were undocumented. Can you talk to me about how it felt to campaign for something that you knew you weren't going to legally be able to participate in? I'm always a little brain behind the scenes um, because I, you know, well, not me, but my parents are scared of my status, of our status. And I completely understand, you know, I'm their kid and they want me to be safe. And so I've always known that my place is behind the scenes. And Sonia says she flourished in the background, doing the nitty gritty organizing work, figuring out granular policy details, being the quiet backbone of the Massachusetts Recreational Consumer Council. And after the election, it felt natural to work with the state as one of a handful of organizations tasked with helping the program to succeed. And the hopes of the social equity program were that we would be the vendors that would help social equity applicants get to the finish line and get to the part where they launch their business. But Sonia says it was setback after setback after setback. It was worse than not knowing what an edible was. To her the program just wasn't being set up to succeed. The first mistake was that people who could be social equity applicants were only given two weeks to apply. Two weeks. And after those two weeks, the program closed the doors. This is paperwork that would realistically take anyone weeks Sonia's referring to a class of applicants who needed to demonstrate not only that they come from underprivileged areas, but that they plan to hire people from similar backgrounds. Sonia says on that kind of timeline, it wasn't set up for just any old person from the neighborhood to successfully get in. More likely than not, you got in if you knew about the program, you knew about the laws, if you knew that this was happening. And so the people who really got in weren't really the people that needed the help. It was people that were already in the industry, in the lobbying world that were, you know, trying to get in. And so seeing that really made us lose hope. And we actually hosted like maybe three, four sessions uh, full of 
real social equity applicants that could actually benefit from the program. Like people, people from the hood, people that were not rich, people that had actually had experience with incarceration, experience with, you know, their families being separated because of prohibition, of weed prohibition. Not only could she see these people getting left out, but she could also see who was scooping up licenses instead. She says the people who were doing the most to shape legal cannabis in Massachusetts weren't even in government. It was these big, multi-state cannabis companies. In her eyes, so long as those corporate behemoths wanted a piece of the action, they'd starve out everyone else. She started to think about leaving. Her co-founders at MRCC wanted to continue working with the state. She had seen the time and energy that that required. And she felt like it was better spent elsewhere, like running their own workshops outside of the state program. And I was like, you know what? No, guys, let's focus on something else. Let's focus on something else outside of the government. Government isn't working. Government isn't going to give us our solution. She lost that argument. Over time, she started to step away from MRCC. Like, how are you feeling about how the industry is unfolding in Massachusetts? Like, how are you feeling about who gets to open stores? Angry, mad. I couldn't live with myself. I had to leave. I had hope when I had hope for Massachusetts. Like, if Massachusetts is able to legalize correctly, then it doesn't matter if it becomes federally legal because the little foundation for Massachusetts is already set up. Right. But now, I don't know. For Sonia, if the state could get it right in the small window of time, then there would already be an equitable foundation for when federal legalization came along. By then, the industry would already look how it should look. But all her hopes for Massachusetts had collided hard with harsh reality. There were simply too many powerful forces at work trying to shape the future. And she was just one little old person. Well, you know, I feel like I'm so jaded now. (laughs) I don't know. You only legalize once. You're listening to the season three premiere of On Something, CPR's podcast about cannabis and the ongoing impact of legalization. When we come back, why Sonia's experience might feel like history repeating itself. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Let's rejoin the season three premiere of On Something, CPR's podcast about marijuana, sharing stories about life after legalization. This season is focused on social equity and the role cannabis might play. We left off talking with an activist who's passionate about making legalization equitable, but eventually found herself burned out. Here again is host Anne-Maria Wad. Akwasi Awusu Bempa has been an activist for a long time. And he's seen burnout get the best of many. He's even suffered it himself. I think that we need to just uh, recognize our wins when we get them, no matter how small that they are. And 
recognize that, you know, oftentimes we engage in activism for reasons that are much bigger than ourselves. Uh, and to remember that we're one kind of piece in a much larger puzzle and a much larger machine. And in the spirit of looking at the bigger picture, he says he feels a bit more optimistic about states like Massachusetts and their social equity laws, at least from where he's sitting in Toronto. So for me, I think it's you know extremely important that these social equity measures are included in whatever legislation is passed. And, and I say this largely based on the Canadian experience. So in Canada, we have federal legalization. We have now for a couple of years were uh, lobbying and pushing very hard for the clearing of the criminal records, which unfortunately only came after there's very little conversation, although that's changing a little bit about inclusion in the industry. There's zero discussion about the reinvestment of a portion of tax revenue back into the communities harmed. Akwasi says perfecting something over time is hard, but it's not nearly as hard as building it from scratch. So, like I look at the, f- the first states to institute uh, good social equity measures really as ideal types, right? They provide these models for others to follow, but they also can be used to evaluate whether or not they've been effective. And you've got something to strive towards. But even with something to strive towards, this larger effort for social equity is truly unprecedented in more ways than one. See, in the U.S., we don't have much of a track record for making laws that prioritize some type of government benefit for people who had previously been victimized by the government. We don't have many other social equity laws outside of cannabis to draw from. But it doesn't mean there aren't some other cautionary tales, like affirmative action. The policy was signed by President JFK in 1961, and originally just dealt with the hiring of federal contractors, specifically prohibiting racial discrimination in the hiring process. Six years later, JFK's successor, LBJ, would amend the order to prohibit gender discrimination as well. Including women then meant including them in every iteration of affirmative action after that, meaning a policy that had started out as race-based became colorblind. Over subsequent decades, the biggest winners of affirmative action would be white women. One 1995 study found that six million women, mostly white, simply wouldn't have had jobs were it not for affirmative action. Women of color made gains too, but by nowhere near as much. So thanks to a policy that originally intended to curb racial discrimination, white women found greater equity at work gaining a foothold in the workforce that far surpassed Black or Latina women. Colorblind laws never result in colorblind outcomes. We, we know that because there are a host of factors that influence individuals' life chances and characteristics that disadvantage them. And so when you institute race-neutral policies or you try to be fair to everyone, the people who have advantages end up being advantaged by those laws. And of course... The Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution prevents any law from explicitly targeting any racial group. So any policy has to walk this fine line between being colorblind enough to be legal and being targeted enough to be truly effective. I had to find a new space of hope because 
I just couldn't stand to see what was unfolding. It wasn't what I had envisioned. It wasn't what I had hoped for. When I first met Sonia Erica three years ago, I found her passion not only inspiring, but kind of contagious. So I have to admit that it's hard to hear that a fiery person like her got so badly burned trying to make the world a better place. But I can take comfort in the fact that Sonia had some really good news to share with us, too. I was formerly undocumented. I used to be an illegal alien. And during the pandemic, the most amazing thing happened and I was able to get my papers. We started this season with her story because I wanted to be completely upfront that this endeavor to make legalization equitable is truly difficult work. And it's passionate people who take up this work and give of their time, their energy, and as Sonia said in the very beginning, their love. Anne-Marie Awad in the third season of premiere of On Something. Hear this and other episodes at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and at CPR.org. Thank you for joining us, and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to On Something team, Anne-Maria Wad, Luis Antonio Perez, Dennis Funk, and Brad Turner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.